my name is Brad uh, Watson, and uh, it's already really, it's been a really good morning, I think. And uh, the question that, that we have today that's before us because of the, the passage that we're reading uh, is this, what do we do when we don't get what we expect from our life with God? Uh, we're in the middle of a series of sermons on the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, uh, speaking to uh, a group of people uh, that were actually in the midst of some pretty high intense stakes, at least in their journey following Jesus. Uh, this, this letter is written to people in first century Roman Empire, uh, very likely the city of Rome, this big bustling center of the universe, if you're a Westerner, if you're not some other center. But for them, they were asking that kind of question. What do we do when we don't get what we expect from our life with God? It's, it's uh, written to people that have left their religious traditions. Uh, they, were, they were likely raised in the Jewish tradition, raised with a, a rich familial Jewish heritage. They had forsaken all of that, having heard the message of Jesus. They began to walk and try to live out life in this Christian community called the church. And they were expecting, likely, to see something different than what they were really experiencing. Uh, joining the faith, they likely thought that they were going to be joining a family, a, a, a Christian community where everybody loved them. They're likely expecting, well, this is like these, this group of people, they clearly love uh, others. If I join this Christian community, perhaps everyone will love and serve and encourage and exhort me, and then I will feel and, and be this sort of experience of a warm blanket of love from this Christian community. But likely what they experienced instead was, uh, while people did love them, they were also called upon to love others, the other people in their community. They likely began to experience that, that not only did they get to receive this stuff, but they were also expected, and even it was required, it was even necessary that they love the difficult, the hard, all these other people had problems too. And that's one slight of, well, wait, I thought I would enter into some sort of wonderful place. But instead I found uh, these people need me to love and speak into and pour into their life as well. They also likely, having heard the gospel and, and were convinced of its truth or, or persuaded that it, was, uh, that it was worthwhile and being convicted even that, that God became Jesus, died, rose again for their sins and the sins of the world, having heard that message and, and sort of grabbed onto it, they likely thought, well, surely I'm going to go around and share this with all of my friends and neighbors and my family. I'm going to run home and tell my grandfather and my grandmother and my brothers and my sisters my boss, my, my employees, the people that I serve, and, and they will hear this message and believe. But instead, what they experienced was kind of the opposite. People expelled them. Uh, their, uh, the marketplace mocked them and made fun of them for going to uh, cannibalistic feasts where they were drinking the blood of Jesus, and, and they, were, they were mocked for believing in a guy who died on a cross. People weren't coming in droves as they shared the message that they had come to believe and know was true. They also likely thought, 
And we're assuming that because Jesus was the king of the world and that his kingdom was advancing through them, that they would see their society transformed. They're likely uh, joining into this faith thought, well, he is the king. Uh, The kingdom is coming through me. It's growing. It's expanding. Surely we'll also all of a sudden see these social, cultural ills transform. They likely expected the city of Rome to look vastly different because of their faithfulness uh, as a Christian community, as, as sharing the gospel of Jesus. They thought, well, maybe like what will happen now is God transforming our city and our culture. That by loving their neighbor, caring for the least of these, um, they would see something transformed. But the reality was is that that culture reviled them for such a message. For such a message that Jesus would be king, not their king. Uh, that, that, uh, that serving and emptying yourself and submitting to others would be somehow a greater good. In fact, the culture reviled their statements about God and Jesus and his kingship and his lordship. They were rejected and mocked. And in some cases, uh, they were, uh, had their property seized, they had business deals fall through, and this community was experiencing the early forms of persecution that would uh, become much more intense. And lastly, they might have thought Uh, If I believe in God, and if God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for me, surely my circumstances will be different. Surely if I choose this life of suffering and following him, and and if I experience while my family might mock me, my my, uh, heritage might have abandoned me, like, surely like God will take care of me. Like, Like my circumstances will be different or better because if he so loves me why wouldn't he protect me from uh, cancer and death and destruction and the economy and the weather and the storms like surely I will be one of his special people but in fact their life was filled with the same stuff that their life was filled with before and so they found themselves in the difficult task of continuing on what do we do when uh, this life that we expected with God is completely different than what we had hoped for? They were thinking, well, maybe it was is easier if we just sort of went back to our heritage. We, we went back to our family. We be, went back to society and said, we were kind of wrong. This Christian phase that we went into was just sort of an exploration. I was just experimenting. But now I'm ready to come back. Maybe that would be the answer. They were struggling uh, not just to to get up and to deal with the suffering of life. They were struggling to remain in the faith that they had tasted, that they had seen, that they had experienced. All wondering, like, this is not what we thought from our life with God. And I am certain, uh, deeply convinced, that we can all relate to that. That this could be written to us today. Uh, We might not struggle... uh, to return back to Judaism. Uh, that's not my struggle. I'm, you know, an Aryan or something like that. Uh, and was never raised in that sort of tradition. But I think often we, we imagine this life with God is not paying the dividends I expected. Uh, the, the suffering that I experience 
is the same as it was before. And, and you might even just be someone in a Christian community where other people are suffering deeply and you think, well, if God's not going to look out for them, my time's coming soon. You might also uh, experience the, the reality of this culture, this life, this world does not agree with my view on Jesus being like the supreme king and lord. Maybe it'd be easier if I just sort of faded it back into some sort of like, Jesus is a good friend of mine. Uh, we had a friend in Portland who, who describes Jesus as her yogi because she was a yoga instructor. Uh, he's, he's someone she could go to, to meditate towards, to find inspiration, but, but not like a lasting hope. Uh, because after all, what good does that do for the people that actually believe? Because Christians are buried, right? We've been to funerals. Uh, Christians that have done remarkable things, like Billy Graham, almost made it to 100, but still, he died. Death is almost undefeated, except for once. We get to talk about that in a couple weeks. Uh, We all have seen those graves. I'm also certain that we can uh, relate because it's kind of the typical cycle of every missional community that I've ever been a part of. And I'm just going to wager that it's part of yours, too. Our, our missional communities are groups of people that are learning to follow Jesus with the anticipation that by learning to follow Jesus, they'll see the people around them, their city, their neighborhood transformed as we specifically try to care for people uh, in nursing homes or neighbors or anything like that. But the cycle is very much uh, this. We start on what is probably the happy hill. Uh, a few weeks ago, we sort of restarted the downtown Culver City missional community, and we were giving toasts to one another, and we were saying, God's going to do amazing things with us, and, and we're filled with all sorts of uh, patience with one another. We're all curious about each other's stories. We're like, oh, I just really want to get to know you. Anytime we text and say, let's hang out, people say, yeah, of course, let's do it. We will drop everything to do it. Uh, we start with these wonderful plans, thinking, oh, we're going to reach this neighborhood neighborhood. We're going to see our living room filled with all these people that are going to come. Our friends are going to finally hear the gospel and be transformed. Or or we think we're going to step into this difficult, dark situation of our city and we're going to bring light there and it's going to be awesome. And it's like that for a while. A few weeks later, though, you realize, man, these people... These are people. They have, they're so insecure. They're so selfish. They're so uh, demanding. And that's just talking about like my, myself in the mirror, right? But then there's everybody else is just like, I thought I was going to be part of a community where people are mature. And like, that they would be pursuing me. But now like, I think I have to like, reach out to them. Uh, the mission that we set out for, we, we begin to realize nobody likes our plans. Our, our neighbors weren't sitting around saying, oh, I really hope someone throws a barbecue sometime soon. They didn't show up, obviously. We get rejected. We even have neighbors that they hear what we're all about, and they're like, cool, take me off your text messaging list. Like, I don't want to be invited anymore. So what do we do when we don't get what we expect? Uh, that's what the author of Hebrews is, is offering through the entire book. 
though I think pretty visibly in this passage. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to start in 11, then we're going to go all the way through through chapter 6. And this is the very middle of the, the text. This is the very middle of this letter, this short sermon to the people of... Uh, of, they're not the people of Hebrews, but they're people somewhere in some city. And the letter gets called Hebrews. And it's an interruption. Uh, the first thing that you'll notice is that he's in the middle, the writer is in the middle of this argument about Jesus being a high priest, a, a kingly priest. And then he stops it and he says this in first, verse 11. He says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you again the same basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go to on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from, the de- from dead works and faith towards God, and of instruction about washing and the laying of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The first uh, sort of response that we see here that these people are making to this life is not working out with God how I thought is content apathy. Uh, These people, uh, and he's giving a pretty strong rebuke to them. Uh, The rebukes are are always kind of strong. I don't know if I've ever heard a weak rebuke. Uh, I, I have, you know, like the weak rebukes of like, hey, maybe you should like recycle. Uh, that kind of rebuke I've heard before. But in the Bible, always a strong rebuke. And he says, I, I could go further. Um, I could tell you more, but you don't want to hear anymore. You are happy and content to sit where you are and say, what I know about God is good with me. What I know that he's asking me to do, I'm coming to grips with that. Don't ask me to go any further. Don't ask me to pursue anything else. I'm happy, these people must have been, because he calls them out on it, to sit back and be taught. Uh, I'm happy and I'm content for someone to pour into me, for someone to tell me these same things over and over again. The apathetic and the content. As he says in the beginning, he says, we refuse to become teachers. Instead, we want to continue on to be students. In other words, we refuse to pour into other people's lives. We just want people to pour into us. We are refusing to grow in the ability to distinguish between good and evil. To be able to to do the practice of repentance and faith so often that we are able to finally successfully see these are the things that God loves and desires and these are the things that God does not love and God does not desire. Sometimes this apathetic contentment gets played out in some form of, well, we just can't know, can we? Like, who's to say if lying is right or wrong? Um, Who's to say if uh, orphanhood is a good thing or a bad thing? 
That's essentially what we do over and over again. And he is here saying, stop being asked to continually be fed. And that's the the next thing that he does, is that we refuse to grow up. We refuse to to press on towards maturity. We want to be uh, Peter Pan and his lost boys. Uh, we, we have that syndrome where we say, I think that if I were to grow more, if I were to understand more stuff about God, someone's going to ask me to do something. What I love about the writer of Hebrews is he does not quit. He just keeps going. He just sort of makes this aside and says, you're dull of hearing. You've refused You refuse to listen to anything new about the wonders and the majesty of God. But I'm going to keep telling you anyway. Here's the deep rebuke. He's saying, a child says, I like the God the way I know him. He fits into my pocket. I know the borders and the boundaries. He's my escort. He's my t-shirt. He's my necklace. He's, he's my favorite tool that I get to use when life is really hard. I don't want to be taken further or deeper. Uh, when I was in college uh, several years ago, a few years ago, <laughs> about 12 years ago, I, uh, which is not that long ago, Uh, Twelve years ago, I went backpacking with my friends in mountains every fall break, spring break, Thanksgiving break, any break they would give us, Memorial Day, we would go backpacking. Uh, One year, we went to New Mexico, and we were going to summit this mountain. Uh, It was one of those, I don't know, it's a mile up kind of mountain. I don't know. I don't remember. I'm not as cool anymore because I haven't used my stuff since then. But this one trip, it was unseasonably cold. It was in October, and uh, the first... Uh, several days were amazing. Uh, we, were, we were hiking on top, uh, above elevation on these grassy, rocky hills. Uh, there were people on horseback that would ride past us. We saw all sorts of wildlife that uh, others would shoot, but we just took pictures of because we're in a liberal arts university. And, uh, and we kept going. And then one night, on the third night, uh, it was so cold uh, that... Uh, even with our water like wrapped up against our bodies, it froze. Like, it was like that, that, that cold. Uh, and we woke up the next day without any water. We couldn't cook our food, so we were eating uh, dehydrated food just straight. We we're just like trying to chew it, hope that like our saliva would moisten it and stuff. Right now, Andrew's thinking amateurs. Uh, anyway, we're just college kids. Uh, and we, and then the next day, after this horrible night, uh, we were hiking. Uh, this was the day we were supposed to get to the very top. Uh, eventually, I got to this one point. Some people say I have altitude sickness. I think deep down I know I'm just a quitter. <laughs> because I fell over onto the ground and took a nap. My friends were rubbing me like, get up. I can't. I just can't go on. And I stayed there. And there was this point where the choice was, after I finally got, like, rocked awake, uh, where my friend sat around me and was like, so we can go back. It's three days. We can go up to the mountain 
and, and see it today and come back down and camp right here. Uh, or we can go back home. And I said, I just want to go back home. <laughs> and that's what I did. My friends went up. They, they went up there. They took these amazing pictures, uh, these like, top-of-the-world phenomenal things. They came back telling stories. They, they kind of got revenge because they told me lies about things I said in my sleep. And, <laughs> but the, in the end, uh, I settled, and this is so depressing, for a Subway sandwich and a gas station while my friends were summiting a mountain. What he's saying here is the same. You want to stay and say, well, this is my, I have my idols that I, that I can identify. I have my sin struggles that I can talk about. I have my one-liners, my acronyms, my whatever it is that I can keep pouring over. And I'd rather have that than being taken to the depths of knowing God. We've decided, it's ex- God is like a book that I can read once and put back on the shelf. And to hear he says, there, there's, that's not the way forward. There, that's not a path to pursue. The next thing he talks to is about the people uh, who decide, I'm just going to not press on at all. Uh, starting in verse 4 of chapter 6, he says, For it is impossible in the cases of those who have once been enlightened, that means that they saw the light or saw the truth about God, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Right here, he's basically he's lining up a whole bunch of like contingent things. He's saying it's impossible for someone who has uh, come to know the truth, see the light, literally, uh, to taste the heavenly gift of grace, to, to have uh, just a morsel of that, to have seen and shared in the work of the Holy Spirit, to have known the goodness of the message of the gospel, and to have seen the power of this age, which is the Holy Spirit to powerfully work within us, he says, it's impossible for people to have done all of that then fall away, meaning to quit. To be restored again through repentance. He says, since they, the reason they can't be restored again is because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to be contempt. For And then he says in verse 7, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the the second people he talks to are are the ones that are tempted to put Jesus on trial once again. Uh, What he's describing here very very viscerally is that we would crucify him once again. 
that instead of, of saying, like the first part, there are things that I question about God and I will pursue Him and I'll allow Him to cross-examine my own life and see uh, the areas in which I must grow and pursue. Uh, there, there, there are depths of which I don't fathom and quite comprehend about God. And so I will, I will reach out and pursue those to the very end. He's saying, these people have decided to flip it and put Jesus on the stand once again and cross-examine Him. When he uses the words crucify him again, it should remind us of all the trials that Jesus went through on the night that he was uh, tried and in the morning when he was sentenced to death on the cross. What it should remind us of is Pontius Pilate. Uh, Standing there, he was the governor of Jerusalem. He was able to weigh and discern uh, whether Jesus would live or die. And what Pontius Pilate did is say, I think you're a pretty good guy. You've done nothing wrong. But you're kind of worthless as well because your life is expendable for my own purposes. Uh, Pontius Pilate puts him on the stand. He asks him questions. He judges him. Pontius Pilate asks Jesus, prove yourself to me. And then he decrees, you should die a worthless man. What we do when we flip the script and we say, yes, I know I've tasted, I've seen, I've understood who you are. But now I'm at this place of considering going away, walking away from this whole faith, this whole tradition, this whole thing that I've experienced that I've come to know to be true. I'm walking out. What we're doing is we're putting Jesus on the stand and we're saying, yes, you came into human history. Yes, you lived. Yes, you died. Yes, you were raised again. Yes, you taught all of the things that we should do, and it's just not a hope that's worth enduring in. And the writer here is saying, you just don't walk away from that. Also, if if you come to God with that posture, he's saying, watch out. There's, (laughs) There's not much to do at this point because you're holding Jesus into contempt. You're, you're judging him as worthless. The, the, the one who judges us, and as he's talked about in this in chapter 5, and then he'll talk again about in chapter 7, is, is Jesus is the high priest that's standing between uh, us and God. And he's saying, uh, these people have been made right on my death, my blood. And what we do instead... They say, yeah, that advocate between us and God is nothing. Then he gives us this parable uh, that's a, a short copy from Isaiah chapter 5. He says, there's, because a, he says, a land that drinks water and, and produces a crop is a blessing to the people around it. But the crop that receives rain and is cultivated and receives everything that it needs and then produces thorns and thistles, that's to be burned away. He's describing for us the the fullness of that sort of temptation to say, maybe it'd be easier, my life would be easier if I just sort of walked, walked it back a little bit, me and my walk with Jesus. After all, A lot of famous people do that today. 
You can sell a lot of books that way. You can get on TV that way. Maybe I should just walk it back and say, I know he rose from the dead and is Lord of all creation, but it's just not enough for me over these years of life that I have. The, the hope that he provides is not enough. I don't like how it makes me feel when he asks me to do things that I don't want to do. I don't like that feeling, so I'm out. He paints for us the, the vivid picture of that that's just not going to work. You just don't walk out on this beautiful reality. Once you've seen the light, you don't walk out. Once you've tasted the, the gift of heaven, you don't walk out on that. Once you've uh, known the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't walk out on that either. And that's what I believe this parable is telling us about the farm. He's saying there's, there's people that have received all of this. Uh, maybe for you, you've walked through uh, all sorts of versions of Christian church your whole life. Uh, you've been there on Sundays. You've experienced you know, the weirdness of youth group. You've uh, walked through high school. And, and now you're actually at the point where you're deciding uh, whether you even believe this or not. Up until now, maybe you've just had the water poured on you day and night, and you've likely heard things that are not true, and you've heard some things that are true, and now you're coming to God and you're like, I want to know whether you're true or not. The warning he gives us here is, don't put Jesus on the stand. He's saying, put yourself on the stand. If you want to cross-examine uh, and, and understand and pursue and, and doubt and ask questions, uh, ask them to God as the one who is the creator of all things, the one who rose from the dead. Don't come and ask them as this feeble man you can put in a pocket and judge and sentence to death or life, as if you have that kind of power. But then he goes on. Uh, in verse 9 he says, Though we speak in this way, yet... In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. He says in verse 11, though, we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Here, I think what he's describing is gospel uh, grit, or there's just a lack, Tripp and I were talking this week about, man, sometimes we just lack grit, uh, which is like a Western film genre, I believe, uh, which is we're just going to wake up and keep doing it. Uh, we're going we're gonna to wake up each day and say, I'm going to take a step on, onto hope. Not, not a step onto, I think my circumstances might change. Not a step onto, maybe my community will get better. Not into, well, maybe our mission will finally click and we'll work it all out. But he's saying, we're going to take a step into hope that, that what he's doing is lasting. And what he's already done is enough to hope on. He's saying he desires that we would show earnestness 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And while our life with God begins the moment we receive the gospel and we're transformed into a new uh, identity that we have listed over here, and while we begin to see a new creation happen within us, I think far too often we think that what we experience today is all there is. No, what we experience in this life is all there is, and that the hope that we have is that God to make things better now. But the reality of, of the hope of resurrection is that life does not end when we bury people, no matter how good they are or how bad they are. That our hope that we endure in to the very end, to death, is the hope that we have to pursue. Your life could not get better at all. You can never be part of a good Christian community. There could always be dysfunction. You might never see any transformation happen through your life at all. And you would still have a hope that's sure and deep and steady tomorrow. Eugene Peterson calls this a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, He wrote a book by that title. Uh, in which he describes uh, Christian uh, faith not as, a, as tourism, where we go and we take some pictures along the way and find some cool sites. But he talks about it as pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is one where you take a step forward, realizing you could be in a beautiful place or a non-beautiful place, but this is where you are. And what the end is so magnificent and so beautiful of that pilgrimage. It doesn't matter what happens in the between. And he concludes this whole section this way. In uh, verse 13 he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore to himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited and obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Because we have this sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. A hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the why we should endure part. He, He begins by saying why we should do this at all by talking about Abraham. Uh, who had many sons, uh, if you remember that song. Uh, Abraham was this guy that that God uh, chose out of the vast, uh, plentiful options of terrible human beings. He chose Abraham to build a family that would be a blessing to the entire world. And at first he came to, to Abraham and he says, I promise to make you, your family great, make your name great, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Years and years later, no children, nothing really happening. God comes to him again and he says, I swear to you, look up into the sky, look at all the stars, I will make your descendants that plentiful. 
Uh, what God had done is he came to him and he made a promise based on his own word. Then he came back and he made an oath based on his own word again. And what the author here is saying is that this is an unchangeable promise. He's saying that God's word and God's promise, these are the unchangeable circumstances in the universe. Uh, He's saying that uh, while all sorts of other things can change, our culture can change weekly, uh, our professions can change uh, four or five times in our lifetimes, Uh, the things that we're good at, we're going to find out later, we're not really good at at all. People are just being nice. Uh, we can raise our children as best as we can and some are going to love us and some are not going to love us. He's saying there's there's one unchangeable reality in all the universe. And it's the very word spoken to create it. That, That what God says and what he's promising he will do does not ever under any circumstance change. A lot of us say we don't like change. I I resonate with that. Um, I think deep down, we are kind of made for that, for there to be something unchangeable. We are made, I believe, to know the reality of God's sovereign, gracious, unchangeable promises. And that's what he's saying, is that we have that kind of promise, that it's impossible for God to lie. It's against him being who he is. Therefore, we have everything to be confident of. And then he says, this is a good news, this is a good promise for those of us who have fled for refuge, who have run for hope. I think that's a pretty great definition of what a Christian really is. Uh, Whenever we're trying to discern if people are Christians or not, it's not a very good practice. But if you want to practice it, look for people who have run for safety, who have said, I'm not okay enough. This world is not okay enough. I have to run to someone. And he says, that's who we are. We are people who have fled for refuge. In every storm, and every chaos, we've run to that. And we have a hope. And he describes the sure and steady anchor. But there's this one thing that I want us to not uh, miss here. That he says that we hold fast to this hope that's set before us. And then he says that this hope then enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And then he says, this is where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Uh, if you really dorky into like language and stuff, you, be, you try to say, well, then what's, what is the hope? He keeps referring to this ambiguous hope. Like, what is it? But in the language here, he's talking about that there's this hope that's gone before us. And then there's this hope that enters into this place between us and God. And then finally, he says, Jesus has entered that place as the forerunner. And this is by far uh, the most important truth about the book of Hebrews uh, that you can extrapolate. It's that hope 
has a name, that hope is a person, that hope walked on earth, that hope, uh, the promise became a person, that, that God loved the world so much that he sent hope into it and that it is Jesus and that it's no one else, it's nothing else, that it is him and him alone. And he says, we have a steadfast anchor. Who's the anchor? The anchor is himself, Jesus. He's the one that's gone in to the holiest of places. That, that our promise that we anticipate and that we long for is actually Christ himself. The oath of God walked on the earth of God and he saved the people of God. Jesus is the high priest. He's the one that intercedes for us. He's the one that speaks. He's the one that we listen to. And when he says, you don't walk away from that. Because if you're not walking away from a list of ideas... You're not walking away from uh, clever language. You're not walking away from the Bible, even. You're not walking away from a, a community or organized religion. You're walking away from a person who is the only unchangeable promise that's ever going to satisfy because it's the only real one there is. I want to close with one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors. Uh, her name is Barbara King Solver. She writes... Uh, Novels, And this is from a novel called The Poisonwood Bible. So I don't want anyone to go buy the book and then think that what you're going to read is about the Bible. Anyway, (laughs) she says uh, this through one of her characters. She says, The very least that you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most that you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right under it in it, under its roof. I pray that that will be our response as we move forward. That the hope of Jesus will not be uh, something that we admire from a distance, like the first people, uh, like me on that mountain. Uh, And that we also will, will press on to discern and to figure out that Jesus is the lasting hope. And that we will not just admire it once we've discovered it, but that we would live every day of our lives inside that hope, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are... uh, the only one to hope for. You're the only promise. You're the only, uh, you're the only good in this world. Uh, we, we try to ascribe words to you that uh, connect with that truth, and it's, uh, it's so hard. To, it doesn't matter how many songs we write. It's just so challenging to, to grasp uh, how steadfast your hope is. God, I pray for us as a people to... Uh, to walk to you, to, to persevere. I pray for us, for us to have that endurance, to walk the long obedience in the same direction, to, to take each step on to hope. God, I pray for us to, to have words and encouragement to people who, who consider walking away, not even understanding uh, the reality of what they're doing. I pray that you would convict us of the moments that we've put you on the witness stand, and we've cross-examined you as if we have a right. 
God, I pray as we come into communion that you will, uh, you will lead us to taste in the, the bread and in the wine uh, your goodness, your heavenly gift, that we would know your grace, which surpasses uh, all of the things that we long to put in, in its place. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Amen.